Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, nobody is traveling very far in a hurry, are they? But lots of people are doing up their houses or moving into bigger ones, those with a job, of course. So are we moving into a cocooning economy? And could that place greater emphasis on the home, meaning we're prepared to spend more of our income, if we have one, propping up the housing market? Is that an unfortunate consequence of COVID-19 or not? Uh, We'll look at that today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. So, Steve, how about this as a as a theory? If economies bounce back at some point, for example, we we find a vaccine, uh, will the money supply this be increased as a result of all this uh, government stimulus? Will that cause inflation, and could that cause panic buying of houses because we're going to have low interest rate and people thinking, "Oh my God, we've got inflation; house prices are going to go up." I've, we've got to do it now. Normally, of course, central banks would react to that by lifting interest rates, so they try and keep inflation. But of course, we're going to have very high unemployment, so high that they really can't do that. So is there is there a chance that we're going to see runaway house prices as a consequence of COVID-19 and other assets and central banks not being able to do a jot to stop it? Is there, is there a danger that that could happen? <sighs> Well, I mean, looking at what's happening in Australia and Canada right now, I, my, my, my automatic reaction would be to say, um, no, the credit, the credit dynamics are going to be disastrous. We won't see that. Um, but at the same mm. time, at the moment, we're, um, we're seeing all the accepts by governments, particularly this America, the Australian and the Canadian governments to prop up their housing markets. And some people seem to be reacting by going in and, 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 and at least in the Canadian data from what I'm seeing, uh, going back and bidding up house prices once more. Uh, it, 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 it just, it seems <clears throat> incomprehensible to me. Yeah, because but there's a whole yeah. chunk of people who are, who are doing okay out of this. So there's all the people who, for example, in the UK, uh, and look, my wife is one of them. She's fortunate that she's still working. We're both working. I've always worked from mm-hmm. home. She used to travel into London, and we've got lots of friends who you know used to spend thirty quid a day traveling into London who still got a job working from home. That's that's just the beginning of it. They save thirty quid, then they save on sandwiches and lunch and all that sort of stuff. All of a sudden, they find that they've actually got more money than they've ever had. Um, and so they're spending it on uh, doing up their houses or buying new houses because, you know, half, let's call it half. Half the population is doing okay. The other half is completely devastated. So the half that's got the money could buy houses and, uh, and, uh, and push, in, you know, push inflation and push uh, house prices and, and you know, inflation generally could go up. I don't know about inflation going up, but but I mean we're certainly seeing some weird dynamics in house prices. Mm. Um, it's still op- you know, open slather in Australia. I'm seeing clearance rates in auctions, which the particular Australian pastime of treating uh, the suburban house like it's a Da Vinci, uh, and you know auction on site and nonsense like that. Yeah. Uh, but the clearance rates are running down to about fifty percent, and normally you need about a seventy percent or eighty uh, percent clearance rate 
to actually talk about rising prices. And at the same time, I'm getting bombarded now with emails about all these great buying opportunities in Brisbane, uh, which is one of the last places I'd want to live given its mm. temperature situation. Um, so it, it, it is a total crapshoot. I'm not going to argue that I've got any, uh, you know, crystal ball to, to, to talk through it, but my, uh, and a large part of what I do as well is, you know, I work at the aggregate level. I'm really looking at the aggregate level of private debt, uh, aggregate direction at house prices and so on. What you're talking about is actually partly distributional in that there are some people uh, at the upper end of the income uh, strata who don't have a large amount of debt and whose spending on commodities has been reduced by the um, by the whole COVID uh, experience, and the thirty quid a day is not to be sneezed at in terms of you know saving yourself that on on ridiculously high rail fares. And so, where's the money going to go? It's not going to go into Marks and Spencer and buying commodities. It's going to go into property, as you yep. say. So you could well have a high end house price boom while the low end completely um, funks. And with a low, driven in part as well by a by a low interest rate, which is going to be there for for some time. So if we look in the United States, it's not just obviously a UK phenomenon or a US phenomenon. The mm. NAHB house price index in the United States this week has gone from sixty seven last August down to thirty in April, and up to seventy eight for August twenty twenty. Current sales have gone from seventy three to eighty four. People with the, the intention to buy in the next six months has gone from 71 last year to 78 now. And people are looking as well. So traffic levels of prospective buyers has gone from 50 to 65. So by whatever measure, uh, the, uh, the, the the house housing market in the United States as well is roaring ahead. And in the the UK, house prices are rising, whereas normally in the, in the summer months, they'd be subdued. But uh, it's out of London selling. The right move data that's uh, been out this week, Scotland and the Midlands, Asking prices are 6.3% uh, up year on year right now. Wales is up 5.8%. London's about 2%, but still up. Uh, but people are getting out of the big cities and, uh, and out into the countryside. So they're moving as well. So there's quite a few quite a few dynamics going on here. But uh, I wonder how long it's going to go on for. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the trouble with this crisis is, is a bit like uh, with, with the last one as well. I think we were discussing this ourselves way back in the, the uh, late noughties in, in Sydney. Uh, you'll have, you'll have mm. a, a government bring in a support of some description for, the, for whatever it is, a support for the market, support for incomes, et cetera, et cetera, and take it away as it starts to have an effect and before it's you know, taking it away too early. Um, so, you know, and we've seen that with uh, the various schemes this time around, particularly in the UK and America, having a scheme which means people have got a cash flow. And in the American case, I think it was about $600 a week was given as an income support for about four weeks. Mm. And there was actually a dramatic increase in consumption because that was more than the people were earning. The minimum yeah. wage jobs, they were rather below minimum wage jobs in many cases. You had, so to be unemployed to, you had to be unemployed to get it, though. So they wouldn't be people yeah. buying houses necessarily. And they did No, but it does give you a spike for the house for the you know, consumer prices, which, yeah. which you wouldn't have acted in otherwise. Yeah. So do you think, and then in the UK, uh, well, you know, lots of places, mortgage holidays as well, or encouraging banks to give uh, mortgage holidays. And uh, and then in the UK, which has almost certainly contributed uh, here, Rishi Sunak has given a stamp duty holiday up to next March. So uh, no stamp duty if you're buying a house up to half a million, which would be, uh, you know, which would be quite easy to do in Scotland and Wales. 
So that might explain part of that growth as well. So the question is, why? Yeah. <laughs> why do you need to prop up house prices? Isn't that the least of the issues that we face right now? Isn't uh, isn't unemployment a slightly bigger issue and and getting people back into jobs? Oh, of course it is. But in the, in the, you know, in, in many ways, that's been ignored and pushed into the background. Certainly, like in Australia and Canada, the two out, outstanding mm-hmm. examples of house price bubble driven economies. Uh, that's been driven right back into the background uh, because. Since the financial crisis, you have had the slow uh, grind upwards of the of the economy, meaning unemployment it was was historically low before COVID hit, um, and in some ways they've they've even lost the focus on what unemployment actually is. They never really had it. The belief that it's voluntary and that that it's a sensible thing to require somebody who's unemployed, as they do in Australia, to apply for about forty jobs a month. Uh, when the ratio of available jobs to unemployed people is about one to ten, I actually feel not just sorry for the um, employee, the unemployed have got to do that, but the bloody employers who get a whole bunch of applications mm. that that are useless. Uh, it, it's it's making it hard for them to find the people they're actually looking for. But yeah, there's there's the focus has gone right onto the property market and making sure that doesn't fall. And I think that largely reflects that the political class that elects the, uh, the, whether they're Tory or Labor, whether they're Liberal or Labor in the Australian case or Democrat or Republican, uh, the, the, the immediate political interests are first of all the financial sector and, and secondly, uh, house owners. So can you? And that's have, what they're kind of, they're pandering to. Yeah. So what about inflation then? Can we have house prices going up, but in general, inflation not going up? And is that what we're is that what we're seeing here? Yeah, well, again, this is how it, it, I look at inflation very differently to the way that the mainstream economists think about it. They see it as a basically, like everything else, it's supply and demand. Mm. And, um, and, and that's the end of the story. To me, uh, and this actually is very post-Keynesian in, in orientation, prices are mainly an income distribution mechanism. They've got, they're not you know, deciding whether you buy apples or oranges, the usual way that neoclassicals think about it as an allocation system. It's an income distribution between workers and, and capitalists. And, uh, and also it's a level of markup, the, the level of, of market power that, that corporations have. The extent to which they mark up their prime costs, which largely are the cost of workers. So if you have an insecure workforce, and that's certainly what we have now, even when you had relatively high recorded levels of employment before COVID struck, uh, you have a working class that's not about to campaign for wage rises, so that itself is giving yeah. you deflation. And then, secondly, you have the capacity for for, manu- for manufacturers to put their markups up to some extent in a crisis like you're in now, particularly in corporations that are carrying a large amount of debt themselves, not just households, uh, be- because their debt servicing costs are going up courtesy of COVID. They're likely to cut their markups. So what you're likely to get is a double whammy. Workers who can't demand wage rises, corporations cutting markups to try to get uh, sales in through their door rather than through their competitor's door. Yeah. If they all do it, you do what Irving, I call Irving Fisher's paradox, as he put it uh, when his, his debt deflation theory of great depressions, the more debtors pay, the more they owe because the, the fall in the amount of debt that's outstanding courtesy of, you know, trying to repay debt. Uh, in a crisis like this, 
uh, is exceeded by the fall in GDP, so the ratio of debt to GDP actually rises even as debt falls. So, so I'm I mean, still expecting deflation in the consumer price index. Well, yeah. I mean, certainly, I mean, it, 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 we're not seeing a lot of inflation right now because uh, a big contributor of that's been the fact that oil's fallen so much because we had WTI over $60 for most of last year. Actually, we have, of course, we had that negative price in late April. It's it's now struggling to get over $40. And that's, a, that's a chunk of uh, what people are spending, isn't it? So that's... Uh, uh, so, so that's contributing to it all. But your argument there, uh, I don't think many uh, neoclassic economists would argue, because I mean, it's a you know, it's an accepted relationship, isn't it, between unemployment rates and and inflation. That if uh, if if unemployment, if more people are unemployed, then inflation cools, and probably for precisely the reason you've given there, that bosses go, well, I don't need to pay you anymore because there's because uh, uh, there's lots of people looking for jobs, and it's not you; it's going to be someone else. Yeah, I mean, they're in the neoclassical actually disputing that one right now. They're trying to argue that there is no relationship in that area. Uh, they're all at mm, sea because, of course, crazy. They, they can't really explain why inflation has been so low for the last uh, one and a half decades or like more going on close to three decades now. They expected with falling mm. unemployment there would be uh, rising inflation. Of course, uh, they're in charge of central banks as neoclassical economists who staff those institutions. And they've set themselves a target inflation rate of 2%, which used to be the floor and now it's the ceiling. And they can't get themselves back to the ceiling again. So they're all at sea. Uh, but over, overall, I think, you know, you know, from a, from a non-neoclassical point of view, it makes sense because they were going to get consumer price deflation out of this. But with all the machinations going on asset markets, you could easily have you know, price inflation at the upper end of asset markets uh, complied with deflation in consumer prices. And that's going to give well, us even more of a disconnect between asset prices and consumer prices. Well, again, it gets down to the haves and the have-nots, isn't it? Mm. And, and I mean, you, you often talk about the, the difference between the, the, the financial class and everybody else. And obviously, that's still around, only more, more, you know, perhaps more so as uh, more money is pumped into the economy through the financial sector. But, but there's another divide now, isn't there? There's, there's those people who still have a job and those who don't, which is largely driven by the sectors you're in. So if you're in hospitality and tourism, you know, you've, you've got a pretty bleak future. If you're uh, in, in, in jobs which are online, office-based, not in those sectors, then you're doing okay. And that's, that's a divide in society. Yeah, I mean, there was a similar one in, in the Great Depression, nowhere near as extreme. But my family actually benefited from that because my, my, uh, my grandfather uh, was a postmaster. And when you, when, when you had with the, um, with the uh, deflation in the 1930s, his wage didn't fall uh, and actually got a, a rising living standards during the Great Depression. So there are, there are, there are always pockets of that nature. But the, the thing is, this, this time around, you've got this crazy distribution of it because I think the services sector uh, uh, is obviously where most of the suffering is occurring directly. Anybody involved in entertainment, uh, in tourism, and in tra- and transportation is potentially screwed, and they're you know they're going to be forced into distressed sales. Uh, but at the other hand, if you, if you're somebody in management uh, or you're a, a creative who's it doesn't have to pour in front of people. You and me are a good example yeah. there, I but suppose. Don't tell me, I mean, that's it basically isn't any, anything which is public-facing. Yeah, it's public-facing versus not public-facing. Yeah. You can yeah. carry on working from home and you don't need to, to be in close contact with people. Yeah. So what about, um, you know, the, the argument that... Because uh, I'm trying to figure out, do you, so do you think we are going to have inflation or do you think it's going to be subdued? What's, what's um, the My next expectation is still deflation. 
at the consumer right. price index. I'm fairly confident of that. In terms of asset markets, uh, you just completely give up on the stock market. That is uh, the, the, the level the stock market's <laughs> been inflated to is just looking more and more ridiculous with time. Well, and every day seems like a new high. Yeah, and you it's, know, but, it's, uh, but it's partly because, again, this, as people say, don't fight the Fed. Uh, the, the Fed is, when it got involved mm. in QE, quantitative easing, it really saw its role as trying to cause asset price inflation to generate what they called a wealth effect that would then they thought would give extra consumption and boost the real economy. It's, it's the most roundabout way to drive, drive the real economy up, you could, you could imagine, but that's what they did. And then ever since then, any, any period of a falling asset price market gets them back in there again with QE, with bond purchases. Uh, in, right. in general, and bang, you've got asset prices out of control. It's it's no longer got any relationship to. And it, well, there's certainly speculation on top, but it's very largely driven by by the central banks. Right, but and look, we can talk about this a, a bit more next week. But I wonder because we're going to talk a bit a bit more about modern monetary theory next week and how how that applies to what's going on right now. But if, but I'm just wondering whether we'll see that um, inflation will pick up and whether that's what people are expecting with so much money being pumped into into the economy. So could that uh, asset price bubble crash? Because look, look at what happened for the US dollar, for example. It, it shot up at the beginning of the, the crisis. It gained 9% in just a couple of weeks in March. And then it lost all of that and more since. And it's now at a two-year low. Meanwhile, gold up more than 30% since the start of the year. Silver is up almost 60%. I mean, that seems like a either that is a hedge against inflation, which is normally the reason people tend to precious metals, or they've lost confidence in the dollar. And they're going, well, there's just so much of it around now, it's going to lose its value. I think it's more of a hedge. Um, I mean, it, it, this is one thing when I'm seeing all the discussions about how particularly the, the Bitcoin crowd are saying that this is a sign of the, the rise of Bitcoin, get out of fiat currencies, get into Bitcoin. Um, and, and a large part of the thinking is that Bitcoin is a trustless mechanism. You don't need to trust anybody. You trust the algorithm instead. Uh, there's plenty of good mm. challenges to that. But the only way it works as a form of money is if people trust it. Now, if you yeah. get a real breakdown going on, if you if you see this, the sorts of um, social conflict we're seeing in America right now, um, and you then have to wonder, well, how do I actually pay for something? The whole like, if, if it went across to being gold that was the basis of buying something or Bitcoin that was the basis of buying something, there'd only be a tiny fraction of the population that could actually shop. Uh, in which case, A, it wouldn't work mm. uh, at, at a macro level, and B, most people aren't going to be, be using that in, in the first place. <coughs> They're going to probably go back and trust the greenback uh, in the same sort of way, ultimately, and this is not the analogy I want to make, but it's, it's what happened. The Roman, Roman coins were being used 500 years to 1,000 years after the collapse of the Roman Empire because they were an accepted means. People, people you know, they, they, they could accept those coins as, an, as a, a shared means of value, and they were widely distributed. The thought of that happening but with I mean, Bitcoin or gold now is just, I mean, it's a fantasy. Right. But I mean, a lot of people are buying gold. It does seem to keep on going up. And, and, and uh, you can't help feeling a big chunk of that is people going, well, the US dollar is going to be worth a lot less. Uh, and so I'll move it into gold and then I'll move it back again once it's uh, once it's had its big fall. Uh, and there are, I've, I've beaten inflation. So maybe it is hedging. But I mean, that shows the I expect- think it's hedging. Yeah. But that shows the expectation, isn't it? The, 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 the US dollar is going to continue to lose value. And, um, and, and what impact is that going to have on on the global economy? 
Well, that's really, I think, the more important question over time uh, because we're seeing a complete disruption of the globe now with COVID. Uh, You have a handful of countries, and it's really down to a handful now, that are COVID-free and and aren't about to start trade uh, importing from anybody else uh, where those imports might in any way mean a new outbreak of COVID. China is one of them. Uh, At the other Mm -hmm. time, you've got countries like uh, France, Germany, Spain, uh, Italy, England, um, and America itself, of course, where every time they try to open up, they get another surge again. They're going to be shutting down once more. Um, this, 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 this is a world where the only way to be sure you're going to get anything delivered is to make it yourself. And I think we're going to see a trend towards uh, or what, what neoclassical economists call autarky rather than trade. Now, that just means a whole swathe of what we're used to, including obviously airlines, but also shipping, uh, and, and so on, just disappear of economic activities. Um, it's, it, it's, it's not the sort of world in which I'd be wanting to, to bet on rising house prices or on gold becoming the means of exchange. I think you'd come back and say a strong state, um, is the, is these the one insurance you're going to have right. for the future? But a strong state means a state that is spending and investing on that uh, on that structural change. It's yeah, and that's where the China again the Chinese are likely to come out ahead. The uh, Americans, uh, you know, at the moment are a total disaster. Hmm. So. Um, yeah, they can't even agree on short-term uh, short-term measures, no. let alone uh, no, trying to d- develop some sort of l- long-term plan. So, I mean, if we look at inflation where it is right now, it, it is pretty low. In the UK, uh, 0.8% quarter-on-quarter, but it was uh, it, it was down to 0.3% in 2015. So it has been lower. In the US in July, it was uh, still up 1% on a, on a year ago, even with that 11% drop in energy prices, because food was up over 4% because we've still got to eat and grocery chains of course haven't been discounting so there is i mean that's just another example isn't it of stru- we're seeing short-term structural change it seems from what you're saying we're going to get, have to get used to long-term structural change and that, that that's going to move a lot of dynamics around i think so i mean I, it, it, there's just no way that the long supply chains we're used to are going to survive this and this is one i mean mm-hmm. I, I, you know i've got my article coming out on nordhaus pretty soon hopefully within the next two weeks and I can't help thinking during this crisis of some of the moronic garbage that was spouted by people like Larry Summers uh, in, in the so-called survey of experts that Nordhau did in 1994, where they were told, uh, asked to think what, what would be the impact of, say, a three-degree increase in temperature on America's GDP or the global GDP. And the basic answer was, oh, because of the incredible flexibility of, of, um, of, of modern societies, meaning that their model of capitalism, um, there'll be effect will be essentially zero. Well, here's our first crisis, and the effect is it's essentially minus thirty percent. Um, so mm. the, the the lack of resilience, the, the the lack of robustness of our society, I think is coming. Is, is we're only be seeing the beginning of that being established, and in the future we, we we're going to drift into. Um, I can't see long supply chains ever being established again. So it's every country for itself is the yeah. likely fate. But doesn't that then get back down to the to the idea of cocooning? That everyone's going well. Okay, I'm going to spend, I'm going to be spending a lot of time at home from now on within the country and at home. Uh, the idea of travel is uh, it, it is something that uh, you know we might read about in old novels. 
uh, maybe for a while anyway. Uh, and so, yeah, we think, well, okay, you know, an Englishman's home is his castle. Let's spend on that and make sure we get that right. So every, everything that we have available, if we've got money available, we're going we're to put into a home. And that's that's going to drive a, a bit of inflation in house prices. That's going to be a bit of a fortress mentality, you know, like a home mm. fortress mentality. And that's quite yeah. feasible. And certainly also, as you see, if you're suddenly not spending as much as you were on a whole range of what really are discretionary expenditures, travel being the obvious one, uh, then in that situation, bang, what, what do you do with the money? And you know, certainly consumer prices at the, at the food level, they can be driven up by the sheer fact that we, you, know, we, we, you have to have uh, far more costly ways of producing food than we have at the long supply chain. So you could see some price inflation in that area. Um, but overall, I think, you know, everything else is going to be plunging, plunging in price. Um, so yeah, the, the idea of put, don't put your money into, into commodities, put it into, into your personal asset and bang, we get an increase in people's willingness to pay money to buy houses, which is the last bloody thing we need. Well, exactly, because that is not helping the economy recover, is it? So that's money that could have been spent on other things. Not quite sure what those other things are, but whatever it is that's going to get the, uh, the, the nation or collectively the nations of the world back on their feet. If we're not spending it on entertainment, eating out, traveling, uh, all the other stuff that we used our discretionary spend on, if we're not going to do too much of that in the, in, in the next uh, year or so, could be many years uh what are we spending it on uh it would be nice if there's something that needs to be on something but not housing because uh in effect it's dead money isn't it well this is where I mean, people are saying we should build uh build better uh once to get out of this crisis reduce our reliance upon carbon-based energy systems uh reduce our reliance upon uh, transportation that's that's uh, that's that fossil fuel based. So that's that's the hope, but that's not going to be done at the household level. That again is the sort of thing where you either have to have the mm. government helping, uh, making it, you know, taking away impediments to 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 green technology, or you have to have firms investing in the area. Uh, as as we start seeing coal in particular become a stranded asset. So, um, again, this is, I, I, this is not a situation where I can see a market economy deciding where we go. It's, again, the command economy, uh, at, at this period is more likely to survive what we're going through. And again, that's why I think China's going to come out of it better than anybody else. So if you're saying that, then, then putting a slug of money, helicopter money, saying, well, okay, here's a slug of money in your bank account, spend it just so we can get the economy moving. That's not going to work because we're just going to. Spend it on our house, probably. Yeah, you, you want the money to go into building your green technology, building nuclear, uh, anything which takes the carbon load off the planet. Uh, that's what's necessary. But there's no way that the market economy is going to do that at, at, at the speed that is necessary to reverse what we're doing to the climate. But how do you get that money into the right places? Do you say, well, okay, let's give people, let's let's find a way to make sure that people aren't just spending money on on investing in houses and then they're investing in green future-proof industries or does the government just do it do we do, so in other words does it go into your bank and then you decide what's going to be the best use of it or does the government is it a real centralized economy I and mean, you can see there'd be an enormous amount of opposition to that in the western world but do you go down that road and say well okay for a while that's what we need because we need to spend money in areas where it's going to future-proof the economy we've also got i mean one one thing which means it can be more market-based is the extent to which progress in in um 
uh, solar technology and wind and wind technologies meant that it's now profitable to replace coal-based power stations with solar and wind. Mm. That's something where you can say, let's rely upon the market to do it and just remove the subsidies for fossil fuels that give them an advantage. Uh, but the other end, if you want to go nuclear power, then that is the sort of thing which you know, we don't have an Elon Musk of nuclear power. Uh, it would be something where you'd have to expect a, a state uh, institution to fund building power stations on a grand scale. Uh, I'd, I'd love to be able to say that thorium reactors at the 40 megawatt scale, uh, uh, which, which are the sort of things you could produce and sell into a market at a profit. I'd love to say that they're feasible. We haven't even got a demonstration thorium system yet. So you're talking, you know, you, you've got to be talking large scale state spending. And then at the same time, um, you know, t- transportation mechanisms which reduce our need for carbon in general and less transportation to begin with. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's this huge mess that we're walking into. And, and that's what worries me looking for any, any particular brand of solution in that is, I just think being, the, well, delusional. <laughs> right. Although, you know, there is uh, the one thing we do love. If you look at, uh, w- you know, what, what people are investing in, in in the share market, it's all technology stocks because people have figured out uh, that, you know, we love our technology and we will continue to. There's a whole, you know, another generation coming along that is obsessed. Not They don't just like technology. They're obsessed with it. If uh, if real life was taken away from them and they could just spend all their life on online, that's what they do. So, uh, so, so that and energy sort of go together quite well be quite easy wouldn't it if we had uh you know if we were told it's now cost effective for you to have a uh, a large battery on the side of your house and solar power and the ability to control all that and maybe trade with it so you've got you know sort of a little, little bit more intrigue uh you know something else to do with your day which is money related uh everyone would love that sort of thing and you know that's a that's a direction you know the economy sort of localized Electricity. I think we've spoken about this before with localized trading and uh, all driven by a gadget. You know, every gadget freak, which is a big slug of the population these days, would love that sort of thing. And maybe that's a direction which is gives gives us something to buy, keeps an economy going, and is good for the planet at the same time. Um, have you seen Ready Player One? No. Have I just described the plot to you? Okay. Have I? What, what is what is it? <laughs> Pretty much, uh, everything falls apart in a heap. It's actually based on the town of Cleveland in the United States, which is a pretty damn good choice. Right. Steven Spielberg movie, um, and everybody lives in a virtual a virtual universe. I've forgotten the name. I think it's called the Oasis, mm. and uh, and you you barely subsist in the physical world while you go and live in the fancy world of a virtual. Right. Well, there's space. been a few movies like and, that, haven't there? But I mean, I'm talking about still living in the real world. I'm just thinking: is there a way that we can use our love of technology? to drive a new industry which is going to be good for the planet. I think that's basically my argument. And I'm sure the answer is Well, the thing is, is travel is travel is gone. Yeah. Um, so virtual travel becomes a possible way of, of replacing that. But the bandwidth, the technology requirements uh, to actually make that feasible, um, we're, we're close. This is the crazy thing. If you ask this question in 10 years' time, the answer would be, yeah, of course we can do that. Yeah. Uh, I'm not so sure moment, about that. I'm not, not quite so, there. I'm not quite so sure we'll, we'll, we'll want to virtually travel to Rome. I think we'd rather 
just walk in the countryside near our house and actually have a bit of real life. But and that's me more localism, more, yeah. more of a local way of life. Yeah. And that's what we're going to be forced to. And there's one reason why I expect Southeast Asian economies, even though they're going to suffer more from the climate change effect, I think they're going to be better because they haven't become as dis, uh, uh, disconnected from the local level as the, as the advanced economies have. Mm. Uh, you know, you've got to, even though you're in the, you're, you're in the British countryside, you've got to walk a fair way to the nearest farm. I've got to walk about a kilometre and a half and uh, mm. in Thailand, I, I, and I think that... I, I wouldn't have to walk yeah. that far, actually. But, yeah, I know, but I mean, that actually does raise the point, doesn't it, about land all of a sudden becomes very important, doesn't it? So if you're in Hong Kong, for example, I was talking to someone from Hong Kong this week and you know, saying, how was it? And they're saying, well, it's, not, it's actually not great because, you know, we uh, lots of places are closed at six. You can only get takeaway. Uh, everyone lives in these small apartments because they're used to eating out and they can't eat out. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's from COVID-19, irrespective of, you know, what's what's going on with the riots and uh, uh, China's influence there. So uh, because they don't have land. And so anywhere mm. where there's land is going to become in demand because of this localism, isn't it? And so, again, it gets back to house prices. If you've got if you if you've got a house that's got a, 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 a good backyard. Surely the price is going to be driven up. Maybe you know, and we're seeing, as I said earlier, we're not seeing that you're not seeing that growth in London. We're seeing the, the growth in the UK and other places where people can have a garden because they need that space because they know mm. they're going to spend more time yeah. in it. I mean, I think this just shows how how much this has has driven a, a wedge through our vision of how robust our societies are. And again, back to those delusional comments from my neoclassical friends to Nordhaus in 1994, uh, we've mistaken efficiency for robustness. And at the very first major shock to the system, it's fallen apart because it hasn't been designed for resilience. It's been designed for rapid throughput, which means fragility. And you break it anywhere along the system, you break everything. And we're now in a case of, okay, we've smashed everything up. Let's, how are you going to put the pieces back together again? And my trouble is we're going to, we're trying to do that while we're still carrying over the, 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 the accumulated private debt hangover from the last crisis, which we haven't even cleared. And then if we expect people to be able to cover their cash flows mm. out of the type of physical economy that's going to exist during and in the aftermath of COVID, uh, they're just not going to be able to do it. So that's, that's why I expect to see you know, a deflationary trend overall, even if we're seeing inflation in asset markets right now. Right. Well, it's going to be, and, you know, it's going to be a year, a telling year, isn't it? Because this thing is going to be around this time mm. next year. And almost saying, we look at the numbers now, they are creeping back up again almost everywhere. Uh, we're getting ready for the second wave. It's, it's, uh, it, it's, <laughs> there's going to be more government money. There's going to be more people losing their jobs. There's going to be more people getting into mm-hmm. debt as a result of it. So, uh, where does it end? I don't want to answer that question. Who know that a rhetorical yeah. question, isn't it? Well, I know where we end. We end yeah. right now till till next week. <laughs> um, that, that's a segue, folks. They call it in the trade. Um, we'll look at modern monetary theory next week and how governments are spending like crazy. And uh, have we sort of reached modern monetary theory by default? Uh, we'll look at that next week. Good to talk, Steve. Thanks, mate. Okay, bye. So what do you reckon to this cocooning idea? Is that what's happening? Are you doing a bit of that? And uh, what do you think the economic consequences are going to be if we are all living local, spending local, uh, but also spending a lot on our houses because that's where we're spending most of our time. Leave a message wherever you're listening to this. We'll be back again next week. I'm Phil Dobby. He's Steve Keen. Thanks for listening. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.